Welcome to Restoration Road Online. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, That is what Matthew 5 is all about. And specifically, we are looking at the first of the Beatitudes. Um, If you don't know what the word Beatitudes means, that's okay, because neither did I until about three days ago. I always, growing up in church, just thought it meant really good stuff. And it kind of does, a little bit. Um, but the actual word itself is a very English word for a very Latin phrase that doesn't translate into itself. Um, it's one of those words that people in English looked at in Latin and says, I think it says this, and then now it says that. Um, so the word itself means supreme blessing. So when Christ is going onto the Sermon on the Mount and he's beginning uh, with the Beatitudes, he is saying to everyone around him, this is how you are supremely blessed. And I want us to keep that in the back of our minds today as we go through this. Um, we can imagine the Sermon on the Mount is a very mixed crowd. It's very poor people and very wealthy people because those are the people that Christ attracted. When we're talking about blessing when it comes to Israel, especially ancient Israel, the people who are poor would actually believe they weren't blessed by God, and the people who were rich would believe they were. Uh, This is a cultural standard for the nation of Israel that was very opposite God's heart, but it's how they believed. They believed, if I have things, that means God must like me. And if you don't have things, well, guess what? Um... And I kind of want to address something before we really get into this. There's going to be like four side notes today, because as I'm reading this, I'm like, I want to make sure they get the context. I want to make sure we don't get lost in this. Uh, But this little disclaimer, um, as we get into the Beatitudes, this is really current fad on social media to take the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to social justice advocacy. Uh, People will say, Christ is standing up for the lower class. Um, And I'm going to have to blatantly disagree. Um, Christ isn't exactly addressing social issues as much as he is addressing the heart of God. He's not telling people how to better their lives. He's telling them how to get saved. Um, So when we read through this, we got to remember this isn't about the poor and the rich. This is about the heart you have with what you have. So we're looking at how to be poor in spirit. And uh, there's two trains of thought when it comes to this, when it comes to the scholarly realm. And we're going to talk about both of them today. One is the physical rejection of riches, and the other one is spiritual poverty. Um, They both sound really confusing. They're both really simple, so don't worry. I want to tell you guys a little about about where I came from so you can kind of understand which part of the crowd I'd be sitting in at the Beatitudes. Um, That's going to start with something I noticed when I moved here in Massachusetts. Bostonians might be the proudest people I've ever met in my life. if you ask a Bostonian where you find the best lobster roll in all of New England, it's in Boston. Uh, they also happen to have the best hamburgers, cheeseburgers, hot dogs, grilled cheese, cannolis, pastries, basketball team, football team, hockey team, baseball team, and everything in between. Um, Boston is extremely proud of itself. I can kind of say this because I'm not from here. I got the outsider perspective on this whole state. Um, I'm actually not from Massachusetts at all, but I did grow up listening to Boston talk radio, specifically Boston sports talk radio, against my will. Um, My dad listened to it all the time, and we happened to work together, so I listened to it all the time. 
My dad is a die-hard Yankee fan. My dad is also in the building, so you can take that up with him. <laughs> um, and he would listen to Boston sports radio and get angry at it and then shut it off and talk about it. And I was like 15, so I didn't want anything to do with this. But one day, I distinctly remember, the, they were talking about a game coming up between them and the Yankees. There were no facts used. It was just the Yankees suck, they're going to lose, that's it. Uh, my dad slams the radio off, and he looks at me while driving, obviously. And he says, it's like nothing can ever be better than the Sox. Sox versus Yankees? Sox won, no problem. Yankees never won once. What are you talking about? Sox versus Godzilla? Godzilla's dust. It's over. Big Poppy, Godzilla, Big Poppy wins. Sox versus God? Man, it's a close one. The Bostonian mentality of that pride and that, that boasting is just so foreign to me. See, I come from a very small town called Scotland in the middle of the state of Connecticut. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay, because no one ever has, even the towns next to us. Um, my town had about 300 people in it growing up, and we had about 1,000 cows. We were outnumbered over three to one. If the cows rose up, we would lose. I am from the middle of the middle of nowhere. In fact, across the street from my house, if you can call it a street, it was dirt. Across the street from my house was a uh, lumber mill. Did you know they put lumber mills in the places where they won't miss the trees? That's, that's how out in the middle of nowhere we were. Um, but something very, I guess, unique to our area is that no one ever talked about wealth or status. We never noticed. Some of my friends were very wealthy. Some were very not wealthy. Um, and no one ever bragged or boasted. It just wasn't part of our culture. It wasn't part of who we were. And then coming to Boston, you can imagine my culture shock. There's 300 people on a square block of the city. There are very few cows here. It is very different than where I'm from. Working outside of Boston actually taught me a very new concept that uh, was kind of foreign to me. I didn't really get, but my coworkers practice constantly, and that's called flexing. You guys know what flexing is? Flexing is the new term for boasting. It means to show off, to be proud of, or to make an illusion of wealth. I had one coworker, this is your perfect example, my one coworker would come into work every single day with this big, gaudy, shiny watch on. We were not allowed to wear watches, and he knew it. And he also knew it was my job to tell him, you can't wear that watch on the floor, I'm sorry. And he would go, oh, oh, this one? Oh, I didn't, even, I didn't even notice it. And he'd take it off, and then he would take its box out of his bag and put it away, meaning he knew he had to take it off to begin with. He was flexing. He was showing off the wealth he had. He was bragging. I had another coworker once uh, kind of just look me in the eye and say, I work a job I don't like. I spend money I don't have to impress people I don't care about. It's flexing 101. This is not a new concept whatsoever. People have been doing it forever. And this is actually what Christ is addressing in that first beatitude. We have an issue in our world where everyone is flexing, but as they're flexing, they're falling apart. As we're boasting, we're becoming nothing. This issue is constantly trying to fill the void within our lives with material possessions. And as we try to fill this void, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And Christ is coming out of the gate with a sermon amount and turning the world on its head by saying that it is better to forsake the world and its riches and enter the kingdom of heaven than to hoard riches here and lose your soul. Now we're going to get to one of those side notes I mentioned. So just a side note, 
and I really want to be very clear about this, being wealthy is not a sin. Being wealthy is not bad. That is not what I'm talking about. My sermon and the Sermon on the Mount are not to persuade anyone to ever take a vow of poverty. God does not want you to live in a cardboard box. It is okay to have a savings account. It is okay to have a nice car. If the Lord has blessed you with wealth, then amen, and praise God. That's a gift. I know people who have a natural talent for making money, and the Lord has blessed them greatly. And in turn, they have turned around, given back to the church, given back to God, given back to people in need. It's a great thing. On the contrast, though, when we say poor here, especially poor in spirit, we're talking about mindset. We're talking about heart attitude. Um, it doesn't mean destitute. It doesn't mean we're beggars. Wealth is not a bad thing. It is being in love with wealth that is bad. That's what Christ will get to when we get into this a little bit more. Um, the real issue arises when we believe that money can solve our problems and not Christ. Uh, and to back that up, Paul actually will write to Timothy about wealthy believers and how to minister to them in a good and positive way. And we're told in the Old Testament that Job is the most righteous man on the earth, and he's also extremely wealthy. So you can be both. The truth is, we shouldn't allow things to burden us and keep us away from Christ. That's what it means when he says, be poor in spirit. We should be people of empty hands and heavy hearts. We shouldn't allow the material things to burden us, and our hearts should cry out to God. And I think one of the biggest issues with getting to that spot, especially in our lives and culture, is that we confuse the words blessed and happy. We look at these verses and we say, yeah, because God wants me to be happy. That's why he wants me to do these things. And that's not true whatsoever. Happiness is very conditional on its surroundings and its happenings within our lives. Happiness, um, honestly, can be bought. I know people say you can't buy happiness. I disagree. You can buy a lot of cool things. They'll make you real happy. I've been trying to buy a PS5 for almost a year. That would make me really happy. Um, but that happiness would be really fleeting and fading because happiness is conditional to what we have and what is happening around us. Being blessed, on the other hand, is contentment with our lives because we know God is in control. It is reliance on God for all things. It is to have joy. Joy is not conditional. Joy is faith-based. Joy looks at the emptiness in our lives, and instead of saying, I want to fill the hole, it says, God is in control. It says, he is good no matter what. And it says, my current condition is not permanent. My current condition is not permanent because this world is not my home. That's the second part of what Christ is saving. We'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. In similar terms, we can take poor in spirit, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, and place some of Christ's other sayings there. An example, to reject riches on earth is to store up riches in heaven. Christ talks about the kingdom of heaven, the riches thereof, constantly throughout his ministry. He is constantly pointing forward. Oh, my cap's still on. That was weird. You all didn't see that. Luke um, would actually write the Beatitudes again in his gospel. And he would reword the way Christ says this. He, he would say, Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. But woe to the rich, for they have already gotten their consolation. Again, this is not anti-wealth. He's not saying woe to the rich because they have. It is anti-greed. He's saying woe to the rich because they hoard. And that hoard is hurting their soul. It's taking their heart away from God. Uh, to really just drive this point home before we get into the spiritual side of it, 
Uh, in Mark 10, we're told the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, this man comes up to Christ, he approaches him, and he says, um, what do I have to do to be saved? And him and Christ start a dialogue. And they talk about the law. And he says, yeah, I did all that. Talk about the commandments. I did all that too. Talks about honoring God, your father and mother. He says, yeah, I did all that as well. Uh, and Christ says, all right, how about one more thing? Uh, there's something you lack. Why don't you sell everything and follow me? And the man says, I can't do that. And he turns and he walks away. See, Christ saw directly into his heart. And it wasn't that he had much that he left. It's because he loved what he had more than Christ. The rich man was lacking. He was lacking the willingness to let go and let God. Standing before Jesus and unwilling to give up his earthly riches to enter eternal life. That sounds crazy to us, right? Like if Christ was here right now and he was saying, hey, give up everything and follow me, I would do it immediately, right? No, I would not. I'm, I'm a weak person at times. And I don't know if I can say I would be any different than this guy was. Sometimes we only want to serve God when it is convenient for us. Picking up our cross and following Christ, that can be real hard. That's a little bit too much for me today. I have to give things up to be a follower. That's, I don't know if I can do that. We live in a culture that wants to hold on to everything they can get their hands on and still make it to heaven. Whether it is the riches of the world or the identity of self or the desires of the flesh, I want my cake, I want my salvation too. If the worry of our heart is, am I going to heaven and not, if God is being glorified through me, then we honestly have an issue. How can we carry our crosses and follow the Lord if our hands are full of the riches of the world and the weight of desire of our sinful nature? We can't. To be poor in spirit in a physical meaning is to give up what we hold on to and rely on God for what we need. It's a mentality of glorifying God in what we have and glorifying him in what we lack. It is rejecting the greed of the world and that which it loves so much for a God who loves us much more. Again, it is not about having wealth. It is about being greedy with it. It is about replacing Christ with it. Let's get to the other side of the coin. Let's get to the spiritually poor side of the coin. And uh, I want to I preface this side note number two. That being spiritually poor is not being down on yourself. I thought it was for the longest time. It is not lacking in confidence. It is not calling yourself a loser. It is not calling yourself someone who is unloved or unforgivable. Because there was a love that came and died for the unloving, the unlovables, and the losers like me. It is because of his death that we are no longer any of the things we call ourselves. We are now considered redeemed, loved, and favored in the eyes of the Lord. And those are the only eyes that matter. Um, also, if you are struggling with identity of Christ, if you feel unlovable, unforgivable, or like a loser, please come talk to me. Uh, I carried that burden for a very long time. It's a very bad burden to carry. Uh, and I would be more than happy to talk to you about it. Um, honestly. Or you can talk to Pastor Joey if you're not comfortable with me. It's okay, I understand. My beard scares children, it scares people too. So what does it actually mean to be spiritually poor? Being spiritually poor is to acknowledge our brokenness apart from God. It is to understand we are nothing without him, and without him we have nothing. Because he is everything. It is the pouring out of oneself to allow God to shine through us and be glorified through us. It is being empty. It is being a spiritual 
beggar. So the Lord can take care of our needs. It is the opposite of every other type of spirituality in the world, each of which says, I will be filled with something or I will become something better. It is to become nothing so God can become everything. It is to practice humility and to practice selflessness. And C.S. Lewis, um, author, theologian, uh, apologist, my favorite author of all time, honestly, um, has, has a quote about being selfless. He said, being selfless isn't thinking less of yourself, like we mentioned. It is thinking of yourself less. It is to put yourself in a place where it's not about you, but about those around you and about God. When I think of myself less and about God more, I put myself into a place of decreasing and him into a place of increasing. My wants become his wants. My desires become his desires. This is what Christ is getting at. It is our hearts that need to be aligned with God and not aligned with the world. Um, there's a great example of the most probably spiritually poor person in the universe, in the Bible, and his name was Job. We talk about Job a lot here, and I love that because it's my favorite book and my favorite biblical character. In fact, uh, the first time Chloe and I came here, Pastor was teaching a sermon on Job. And I remember getting very excited. And I got in the car with Chloe afterwards, and I looked at her and went, He taught on Job! No one teaches on Job! I like it here. We came back the next week, thought about Job again. It was great. Um, we were told off the bat that Job is a righteous and rich man. He has lots of wealth, lots of land, lots of family. He is rich in his livestock. His number uh, into the thousands and the tens of thousands, so it's just like my hometown. There are cows everywhere. Job is tested by God, and he loses everything. All of his land, all of his wealth, all of his livestock, even his family is gone and taken away from him. He covers himself in ashes, and he sits in the dust. And then he is struck with a sickness that is so disgusting, I will not mention it from the pulpit, because I'll probably puke, honestly. <laughs> Every time I think about it, I'm like, ugh. He went from the top of the world to the bottom of the world, and how did he respond? In chapter 19, verses 25 to 27 of Job, Job states, after sitting in silence and having friend after friend and his wife come to him and tell him he was wrong, he responds with, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I, not another. How my heart yearns within me. Losing everything meant nothing to Job. Because he already knew everything he had belonged to God to begin with. We tend to focus on Job as a rich man. We forget to focus on him as a righteous man. Even when he had the world at his fingertips, Job's heart's desire was to please God. He relied on the Lord in all things. And when he had nothing, nothing within him changed. The only desire within him was to please God from before everything was taken from him. There's a train of thought and this will be our last point um, in, in Christianity that makes me pretty sad, honestly. Um, and that's the prosperity gospel. It's seeped its way into many congregations, into many preachers' te teachings, into very good friends of mine's hearts. Um, and, and it really upsets me because it is so against and foreign to what Christ is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. Christ's teachings in general, he is teaching about forsaking our lives for the sake of God. So how can we live 
lives that are pleasing to us and not to him. There has been a phrase used over the last decade or two to describe this train of thought, and it's living my best life now. Um, I've heard this from multiple pulpits, sadly. I want to tell you all something um, that was actually offered to me. My best life now was put before me about a year ago. Um, I've made a lot of connections in a lot of places and a lot of churches because I went to Bible college. That's it. Simple as that. I've just been around. And when you're around, you get to know people. People ask about you. And then when they need people, they tend to call you. Um, nothing really ever came of any of that until I started the pastoral track here at Restoration Road. Almost a week later, I had a call from one of the biggest churches in Connecticut asking if I'd want to be on their staff. Um, this happened at least three or four times. These were paying positions. They were, they were paying more than I've ever made in my life. It's more money I could ever ask for. Uh, I worked at Starbucks, and I thought that was a lot of money. This was, like, way over that. Um, but my impact in these churches would have been so little. My interaction with people would have been so meaningless and not nearly as deep as it could have been here at Restoration Road. These churches' visions, while good, weren't ours. They didn't have a heart for the gospel. But they're offering me, though. Was the gospel really worth that much? I could have lived my best life now very easily. I remember praying to God because I was so conflicted. Part of me wanted to leave the pastoral track, leave Restoration Road, stop doing what I was doing here, move to this big church, make lots of money, never have to worry about life again. And I was put in a point where I either stayed the course or I gave up. I stayed the course. I stuck it out. And I put that part of me that wanted the riches of the world to death. And I decided it is better to be where I know the Lord wants me to be than be a place where I know the world can take me away. It is better to be here and be volunteering than it is to be somewhere where I'll have everything I could ever ask for. The point of that is to say to lose ourselves and to forsake this world is to gain Christ and eternal life. C.S. Lewis, I like him if you couldn't tell, had a radio broadcast where he talked about the Christian life. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase what he said because it's very long and he's very British and very hard to understand. Um, but in short, he said, the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious, we become Pharisees. We try to be kind and we become patronizing. Out of ourself and into Christ, we must go. My best life now is tainted, just as Lewis said. Because fun fact about me, I love to sin. I'll be honest. My flesh loves to sin. The part of me that opposes God loves to sin. But really, hear me out here, I love Jesus so much more than that. That we forsake and we take those parts of me and I throw them out the window. To give into the idea of my best life now is to forsake Christ. My best life now is what I die to daily for the sake of Christ. My best life now is what is wicked and vile and I pleaded to God to take it away from me. My best life now was crucified with Christ so that he may be glorified because it is the exact opposite of everything he taught about. In short, this life is not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about glorifying God. Wait, I'm sorry. It is about glorifying God. It's about serving him to my fullest. 
We should die daily to the thoughts of our best life so that Christ can be alive within us because that's so much more. And as C.S. Lewis said, our wants and our desires need to go so that Christ can be within us. To be poor in spirit is to cast off the treasures of this world, physical and spiritual, and wholly rely on God in his everlasting strength and goodness. So how do we do this? We empty our hands of the things of the world. We burden our hearts with the things of God. Let us learn to be like Job and to rely on God for all things and not let the material things get in the way of our love for the Lord. And let us learn to die to ourselves daily. Let us forsake this world, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak, and I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you help us to daily be reminded of what you did for us and for who you are. You help us to forsake the things that hold us back from you. You help us to become spiritual beggars so that we fully rely on you for the things we need in our daily life. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon at Restoration Road. We hope it blessed you and invite you to join us for next service at 10 a.m. on Sunday. God bless.